welcome to Ragbag's bonus bag. My name is Frank Burton. Part 3 of the audiobook serialisation of Getting Away With It, the second in the Ragbag Books series. Let's get straight on with it. Chapter 15 For better or worse, I did as I was told. I returned to Manchester, unemployed and more than a little annoyed. I texted Jenna to inform her I'd quit the job. I ignored her reply and ignored her calls for a few days. She got the message after the third or fourth call. She gave it a couple of days before texting. Are you still mad at me? I was sitting on the beanbag in my flat, staring at the wall. I had nothing to do, so I called her. Yes, I said. I just want to say I'm sorry, she said. I'm sorry too, I said. I've had time to think about it, and it's obvious now that I should have kept a lower profile. Maybe it's myself that I'm mad at. Don't be hard on yourself. Also, I said, I can't get benefits because I left the job voluntarily, which means I need to get another job as soon as I can. All these applications are asking for a reference from my previous employer. That's awkward, to say the least. I see what you mean, she said. I might be able to do something for you. I appreciate the offer, I said, but I'm not in financial ruin. I've got savings I can break into. Hear me out, she said. I'm looking for a research assistant. It's a temporary thing, but it's paid work, and once you've done it, I'll be classed as your previous employer. That could work, I said. Great, let's go for a drink later. We haven't done that for a while. That would be good, right? No worries, boss. Ha, don't be late. I ended the call with a smile on my face, observing how quickly Jenna had managed to turn things around. The anger and resentment I'd felt towards her over the last few days had completely disappeared. The frustrating thing was, it didn't feel like I'd been manipulated. I hadn't been manipulated. Jenna was being nice to me, sorting me out a job when I needed one. As much as I wanted to think of her as a supervillain who was controlling my life, I couldn't help feeling that she was just being a good friend. It was nice to catch up with her in the pub that evening. For a while, we just talked about regular stuff. I told her about some of the people I'd met while working in Skipton and the fun I'd had while I was there. She told me about her job and her strategies for avoiding all the office politics at the university. For the briefest of moments, it almost felt like we were two regular people who wouldn't have dreamt of concocting a massive extortion plot. But then, inevitably, the subject of Operation Fido came up. She was just calling it Fido now. I need to check something with you, she said. The proceeds from Fido. We need to decide which charitable cause to donate it to. Aren't you getting ahead of yourself here, I said. Why not wait until you have the money? As soon as I have the money, it'll be gone again, she said. It'll all be controlled via offshore accounts. None of it can be traced back to the two of us. But just in case something goes wrong... This was the first time I'd heard her say those words in relation to Operation Fido. She'd always been 100% convinced that the scheme was foolproof. I said, I thought you said. 
Listen, she said, this is my way of eliminating risk. It's entirely possible that the donations we make will be picked up by the security services and treated as suspicious. They could even link those payments back to Fido. And from that point, as heartless as it may seem, they can legally reclaim the money from the charities concerned. Or they would if I hadn't designed my giving system properly. Giving system? I have a long list of different charitable organisations, around 1,500 of them altogether, and all unrelated to one another. They're spread across six continents, all great causes, reforestation programmes, conservation groups, medical research, human rights organisations. They'll each receive a small sum of money from anonymous donors on the same day, all of a slightly different amount and seemingly sent from entirely different sources. Because none of the payments will be large, there's zero chance of them arousing suspicion. No one would even suspect a criminal of giving their money away in the first place. Why would a criminal do that? So, when you say just in case something goes wrong, I mean, it's impossible for any of it to go wrong, she said, bearing any technical hiccups, I suppose. Technical hiccups? Forget I said that. I can't talk about it. And you're actually going to give all the money away, every single penny? She nodded, as though that were a stupid question. Minus expenses, the accountants will take their cut for a start. Accountants, who are these people? Jenna ignored the question. The reason I'm bringing this up, she said, is that I'm taking steps to ensure that none of the charities on my list have any connection to yourself or myself. For example, if by some miracle the authorities figure out what we've done and they somehow manage to put together a list of all the charities we've donated to, there's a possibility, albeit a tiny one, that they could figure out who we are based on the causes we care about. So let's say we donate a bunch of money to the Stroke Association. Two of my grandparents had strokes. It's a tenuous link, but if somehow they manage to make me a suspect in their investigation, I don't want them bringing up my family's medical history. So for that reason, I won't be donating money to the Stroke Association. Likewise, you've told me about your mum's drinking and your dad's gambling, so nothing will go to charities that help people with drink or gambling problems. You're a vegan. The Vegan Association are getting nothing. You see what I mean? What else should I be aware of? Any illnesses in the family? I don't really know, I said. My dad's parents both died of cancer. Is that the sort of thing you're looking for? Exactly, she said, making a note. No cancer either. Fine. Are you sure this is necessary? I said. I told you we're eliminating risk. That's why this whole thing has taken so long to plan. I need to consider every possible outcome. Anything else I should knock off the list? Anything close to your heart? I don't know. Not really. Good, she said. That's handy. I mean, it's handy that you don't have anything close to your heart. I laughed. Well, <laughs> my heart's open to everything, I said. I don't discriminate. That makes me sound slightly less cold-blooded, doesn't it? Jenna made another note. What are you writing now? I said. I need to knock off that anti-discrimination group. Because I said I don't discriminate? I assumed you knew that about me already. OK, she said. Maybe I'm overdoing it a little. Let's just leave it there. A couple of drinks later, I remembered we were supposed to be talking about my new job. Haven't I told you about it yet? She said. 
No, you haven't. Well, sorry, mate. You start on Monday. Doing what? I thought I'd explained this already. Did I dream that? We've had a lot to drink. I said, you'd probably better tell me before we both lose the power of speech. Right, she said. So, this project is very interesting. It's all about finders keepers. I'm sure you've heard the expression, Frankie. But did you know, finders keepers losers weepers is the actual law. Like, if we stepped out into the street and found a large wad of money on the pavement, or a diamond ring, or a gold brick that someone's accidentally dropped, that would technically be our property. We'd be under no legal obligation to hand those goods into a police station. It's slightly more complicated than that, in the sense that if the owner of the diamond ring somehow finds out that we've got it, they could take us to court, but there's no guarantee that a judge would find in our favour, particularly if we deny having seen the ring in the first place. Right, I said. And the job? I had this theory that under the right circumstances, a person can make a good living under the finder's keeper's principle. If you spent the whole of your working day, 9 to 5.30 in this case, wandering the streets looking for stuff, you'll encounter all sorts of valuables. Cash too. Anything of value that you find can be sold or kept. I want to build up a picture of what this would look like and how much money you could make by living like this. I can't imagine I'd make much, I said. I never find cash in the street. But have you ever set yourself the task of spending 40 hours a week looking for cash in the street? No, I haven't. Exactly. I'm pretty sure no one has. What about homeless people? I've never seen a homeless person do that, not properly anyway. You might see a homeless dude wandering around scavenging, but not as a full-time occupation. For one thing, to walk the streets all day, you'd need to be in a good state of health and fitness. If you're sleeping rough, living hand-to-mouth, you're not going to have the energy for such an undertaking. My theory is you need to be doing this job for at least 40 hours a week to reap any significant rewards, or at least earn more than the minimum wage. How can I be expected to earn more than the minimum wage? I said. I know it's only four quid or whatever, but finding the equivalent of four pounds every hour just lying there on the pavement. It's not going to work like that, she said. It's more likely you'll find nothing of value for two whole days, then halfway through the third day, you'll find someone's wallet on a park bench. The wallet has a hundred pounds inside. Not a bad find, but it's taken you 20 hours to get to that point. Still, £100 for 20 hours work is the equivalent of £5 an hour. You see what I mean? I do, I said, and I'm happy to help. In any case, I need the work. How long does the contract last for? It's ongoing, she said. If my theory proves to be correct, you could literally do that job for the rest of your life. At some point, it will stop being research and it will just be your means of making a living. I'm not sure if it's an ethically sound career choice, I said. How do you mean? I couldn't tell if she were joking or not. You know exactly what I mean, Jenna. You wouldn't be breaking the law, that's the point. Yes, but finding someone's wallet and helping yourself to the contents, or snatching up some gold jewellery that someone's dropped and selling it on. Do you see how this might be considered unethical? Right, I see what you mean, she said. You'll have had to get this cleared by an ethics committee first, right? 
I did, she said. Researchers such as yourself are advised to hand in their findings to their nearest police station. Advised, I said. Yes, the ethics committee don't go as far as to check up to see if you actually did that. As far as I'm concerned, if you find £10,000 in an abandoned suitcase, it's yours. Find us keepers, Frankie. That's the whole point. On Monday morning, I took a train, followed by a bus, to a small town in Cheshire, not far from Rolf and Rose's place. Jenna's theory was that the places I'd be most likely to make money were towns with a generally affluent population. The area needed to have a population of at least 30,000 in order to give me a fair chance of finding lost or abandoned valuables. Areas with larger populations would be likely to be more hit and miss. Technically, there will be a higher number of valuables lost, but anything of value that falls onto a busy street won't be sitting there for long. Also, larger population sizes are bound to include a higher proportion of people from lower income groups who are less likely to drop anything of significant worth. This still seemed like a fairly insane way of spending my time, but at the very least, Jenna had put plenty of thought and consideration into this project. I was quite interested to see how it would all turn out. I was wearing the casual suit that Rolf's PA had given me a few weeks ago. I'd been expecting her to come and collect it from me, but she never did. I suppose this was another one of Rolf's gifts, although that had never been made clear. Anyway, I needed to wear the suit so I didn't look suspicious. I'd be wandering the streets of this small town for several hours and could easily be accused of loitering if I wasn't careful. Jenna assured me that all I needed to do was dress smart. People trust a man in a suit, she said. You can pretty much get away with anything in a shirt, tie and blazer. As much as I wanted to disagree with her, it turns out she wasn't wrong. I spent the whole day walking with my head bowed down, scanning the pavements and lawns, bending down to peep under bushes and parked cars. No one asked me what I was doing. I received plenty of smiles and friendly nods from passers-by, and I couldn't help feeling it was all because they liked the look of me. In particular, they liked the look of my suit. Partly this made me feel uncomfortable, but also I quite liked it. It was like being a low-level superhero. At the end of the first day, I'd collected absolutely nothing, not even a 10p coin. I wasn't surprised or disappointed. Jenna had made it clear this was a long game. The next day, I went to a different town with a similar level of affluence. It rained for most of the day. I brought an umbrella. I found a carrier bag containing an unopened bottle of orange juice and a pack of birthday candles. It was unlikely I could resell either of these items. Nonetheless, I put the birthday candles in my pocket and, after some consideration, drank the orange juice. On the third day, I visited the next town along. I found nothing of value, but there were a few points of interest. I found a shopping list with a long list of everyday household items. On the back were the words, Sweet potato, sweet potato, sweet potato for Bashed potato, smashed potato, squished potato gore. As I continued walking, I wondered who had written these words. Was this just something they'd made up idly on the spot while composing their shopping list, or was it the first draft of a serious poem that the author had been dreaming up for hours in advance? While the former of these options seemed the most likely explanation, I couldn't help pondering over squished potato gore. What an exquisite combination of words. Even now, two decades on, I still remember the discovery of this note. 
Indeed, there have been many occasions over the last 20 years when the words squished potato gore have popped into my head out of the blue, and it's made me feel something indefinable. A few sentences ago, I claimed to have found nothing of value that day, but clearly that isn't true. Half an hour later, a little way around the corner from the spot on which I'd found the shopping list, I found the remains of a photograph that had been cut up into at least 20 pieces before being discarded beneath a lamppost. I collected these pieces up carefully and put them in my pocket alongside the birthday candles. Later, at home, I slotted the pieces together on my tabletop. It was a picture of a young man in a tracksuit with a beaming smile on his face, holding a baby in his arms. I spent hours wondering who this man was, under what circumstances was this photograph taken, and how did it end up being cut into tiny pieces and dumped in the street. I texted Jenna. Absolutely love this job, thanks mate. She texted back. Colon, close bracket, X, which I took to be some kind of secret code. By the end of the first week, I'd made no significant monetary gains, aside from some small change I'd picked up on the Thursday and Friday. The following week was equally disappointing from a financial point of view. My favourite find that week was a note I found scribbled on a bus ticket in the middle of an empty parking space that said, I hate you, Jason. I wish I could hide bombs in your skies and rust your throne to dust. One day, you will be me, Jason, and I will be the hated one. The week after that, I found a £5 note in a patch of weeds. A significant discovery for sure, but it only served to highlight the fact that Jenna had predicted an average of £5 for every hour I'd worked. It had taken me almost three weeks to find one £5 note. Was I the problem, I wondered? Had Jenna been right all along and I simply hadn't been looking hard enough? There was no doubt that I should have been paying a little more attention... Maybe my habit of finding materially worthless items then getting caught up in their possible backstories was distracting me from the actual job of seeking financial reward. Then something happened that cast a new light on my assumptions about Jenna's theory. Actually, it cast a new light on Jenna herself. It would be fair to say what happened next cast a whole new light on everything, including my own relationship with reality itself. It was Friday. I was walking home at the end of another fruitless week. I considered myself off duty at that point, not looking for anything in particular other than what my eyes could already see. And there, in a patch of stinging nettles, on the other side of a set of black metal railings, was something poking up from the green. Something gold. I happened to have a thin wire hook in my pocket, which I've been carrying since day one, but hadn't had reason to use it yet. After a minute or two's fiddling, I fished it out and held it up to the sunlight in the palm of my hand. I recognised the brand name. It was still working, still set at the right time. This must have been worth something. I had absolutely no idea how much. I was guessing it could be anything up to £500. If I was lucky, this could just about prove Jenna's theory. This could actually compensate for three whole weeks of nothing. I strapped the watch onto my wrist and took the train home. Back at my flat, I sat in front of my PC and typed in www.rolex.com. 
It didn't take me long to find a match for the watch on my wrist. I looked twice. I looked again. I took a walk around the room. Then I went to the bathroom. Then I sat down at my desk. I closed my eyes and I opened them again. None of this did anything to change the cold hard fact that this watch had a market value of £20,000. In my previous job that was more than a year's wages. This was... No. It was... No, it was definitely... No. Nope. Squished potato gore. This was not happening, not really. This could not have been an actual coincidence. This is Jenna McIntyre we're talking about here. A woman with lots of money, God knows how much, who likes to get what she wants, and God knows what she actually wants, but this was clearly her handiwork. If she was willing to hold Skipton Castle to ransom, she'd be more than happy to plant a solid gold Rolex beside a train station in order to successfully prove her own dubious hypothesis. It all seemed so perfectly convenient. I'd travelled to the place that she'd told me to travel to, I'd taken the train, and she knew that I would, and there, just beside the train station, unseen to the untrained eye, but perfectly visible to a man who spent the last three weeks scavenging for anything of even the remotest value, was a twenty grand Rolex. Of course Jenna put it there. What other explanation could there possibly be? In order for the watch to have ended up in that patch of nettles, it would have to have been deliberately taken off and thrown over the fence. Unless a local millionaire had some kind of Tolstoy-esque midlife crisis, this was clearly an act of academic sabotage. But then I thought, hang on, local millionaire, midlife crisis? Jenna had deliberately drawn up an itinerary of small towns with a disproportionate number of millionaires per head, and I'd spent 15 working days searching for lost property in areas in which lost property is likely to be of a higher than average monetary value. Who knows? Who knows how many Rolexes get dropped in these affluent areas? If this particular watch was dropped by an actual millionaire, he or she will probably have an insurance policy on it. All they'd need to do would be report it stolen or whatever and claim their replacement. I need to think about this. At the very least, I needed to sleep on it and see how things felt in the morning. I definitely wouldn't mention any of this to Jenna until I decided what needed to be done. So that's what I did. It took me a while, but I went to sleep. In the morning... It was very clear. I knew what I had to do. As I'd done the previous two Saturdays, I went into town and dropped my suit off at the dry cleaners. Then I got on a train to the town where I'd found the Rolex. I stood outside the train station, and when I was sure there was no one watching, I tossed the watch back over the fence in roughly the exact same spot I'd found it in. I took a train back to Manchester. Instead of heading straight back to my place, I went and knocked on Jenna's door. Frankie, she exclaimed in my face. How's it going, man? I didn't return her smile. I don't know, I said casually. I was in the area. Thought I'd see how you were doing. I'm absolutely brilliant, she said. Come on in. I sat down on the couch. Are you okay, Frankie? She said. Kind of, I said. 
you don't look okay. Okay, well maybe I'm not enjoying this job as much as I thought I would. Really? I thought you said... Yes, but that was in the first week. Now it's been three weeks and I've found absolutely nothing. Her face didn't move apart from her eyes, which widened just by a tiny amount. Really? She said. I nodded. Over the course of the last three weeks, I've made a grand total of £3.73, mostly in one and two pence pieces. She blinked. So, no big fines at all? Absolutely not. Are you sure? Are you calling me a liar? I snapped. No, she said calmly. Chill out, mate. Why are you getting so worked up? I don't know, I said. I suppose it turned out to be quite a frustrating job. I'm not sure I want to do it anymore. There's no pressure for you to carry on, she said. Absolutely not. Don't feel like you have to. It's helpful to know that one of my researchers didn't get anywhere. It'll throw the results off a bit. But this is all real world stuff. These are the figures we have. What do you mean, one of my researchers? I said. I mean, there's more than one of you doing this. You never mentioned that. Are you sure I didn't? She said. In the pub? I may not have a full recollection of that night. I was pretty rough the following morning. Yeah, so was I, she said. It was a good night. But maybe not the best time to have a work-based meeting. Come on, Frankie, it's not really work, is it? Whatever. Just tell me how many other people are involved in this research project of yours. Well, there are four other volunteers, she said. One of them had a similar experience to you, didn't find anything of significant value until the third week. Then he found a vase that had been broken into three or four pieces outside a Chinese restaurant. He collected the pieces up and had them professionally repaired. Following evaluation, he's been told the vase is worth at least £40,000. It's up for auction next week. Really? I said with a blank expression. What are the chances, right? She said. Right. I said. One of my other volunteers found virtually nothing at all until the third week when she found an abandoned wallet in the stairwell of a multi-storey car park. There was only £20 cash inside the wallet but also inside, in amongst a bunch of copper coins was a diamond necklace worth £20,000. £20,000, I repeated. Can you believe it? She said. Yes, I said rather firmly. I believe that wholeheartedly. I can see a pattern emerging here. Can you? She said, because apparently your case would appear to be breaking that pattern. I haven't even told you about the other two volunteers. Both of them found nothing in the first two weeks. Then in the third week, one of them found a book of stamps, collectible ones, resting on top of the lid of someone's recycling bin. Almost as though it were planted there, I said, waiting for this person to find. Exactly, she said. I mean, what are the chances? Guess how much it was worth. £20,000, I said. Fifteen, she said, but still, not bad for three weeks' work. Then there's the most unbelievable case of all, the fourth volunteer. I don't even want to tell you about this one, because it sounds almost like I myself was in some way responsible for it. I assure you I'm not. Okay, I said. Go ahead. 
They found nothing for the first two weeks, said Jenna. Then they found something. It was off the beaten track somewhat. In fact, they didn't actually find it lying around in the street. They were taking a break and popped into a second-hand bookshop because they liked the look of the window display. And there they found something truly extraordinary. A second edition copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders. The weird thing is, the researcher had no idea that I was the author of the book. Somehow, through the grapevine, they'd found out about the book. And in particular, they'd heard about the market value of this particular edition. It was on sale in the second-hand shop for £4. My volunteer bought it and has had it independently valued via an American bookseller as being worth no less than £80,000. I still can't believe it. I can't believe it either, I said. I don't believe a word of it. I'm telling you, she said. I don't want to do this job anymore, I said. Really, she said. I thought these stories might have encouraged you to continue. I said, all they've done is convince me that I want no further part in this project. This is me quitting with immediate effect. I desperately wanted to add, it's perfectly obvious that you planted all of those items for your researchers to find, including a copy of a book that you wrote yourself in order to prove your hypothesis or whatever your motivations happen to be. I don't know anymore. What I do know is you definitely planted that Rolex. But I restrain myself for some reason. Maybe I didn't want to make the accusation without proof. Or maybe I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Okay, she said, if that's what you want. It is, I said. So, when do I get paid? She blinked. Paid? Yes. You read the contract, didn't you? I don't remember a contract. You signed it in the pub. While I was blind drunk, how very professional of you. Don't be like that, she said. Jenna, just tell me when I'm getting paid. My rent's coming out next week. Frankie, I thought you knew this was a voluntary position. There's no payment other than your findings. That's why I think you should stick with it for longer. You're bound to make a big win like everyone else has. It seems to be the pattern. I need to leave, I said suddenly, leaping to my feet. Come on, mate, don't go storming off. I said, there are times in life when storming off is the only thing to do. This is one of those times. I'll see you later. I left Jenna's house and headed straight for the train station. I returned to the exact location where I tossed a Rolex over the fence. It was pouring down with rain. The watch would be damaged but repairable. If I wasn't receiving a wage, I'd better crack on with selling the watch. I didn't need to feel guilty about running off with someone else's pride and joy. This wasn't anyone's pride and joy. For whatever reason, it was part of Jenna's budget, which, thinking about it, must have been astronomically large. This was the part of my theory that didn't make any sense whatsoever. I knew Jenna had money to spare, but surely that didn't extend to splashing out tens of thousands for no good reason. I couldn't see the watch through the gap in the fence. It must have fallen down beneath the nettles some more. The fence was about eight feet tall with large pointed spikes on the top. I stood on top of a nearby bollard, placed my right hand between the spikes and vaulted right over it. I scrambled around in the nettles while the torrential downpour continued. I stayed that way for several minutes. 
Eventually, I staggered backwards, soaked to the skin, with expanding white spots all over my hands where the nettles had got me. The Rolex wasn't there. Presumably, some bright spark had spotted it glinting through the fence and helped themselves to it. I found a chemist where I bought some cream for my hands. I got back on the train. I saw a text from Jenna. Frankie, I'm really sorry that I didn't make it clear about the pay. You're right, it was unprofessional of me to present you with the contract in the pub. I wouldn't have done that with anyone else. I'll sort you some money out for your troubles. I texted back. I'm still really angry with you, but it's not about the money. I've got savings I can break into. I feel cheated and used. She replied. Let me make it up to you somehow. I've messed up and I want to put things right. An hour later, I arrived at her doorstep, still dripping wet. Christ, she said. Come in and dry off. Let me get you a dressing gown or something. Thanks, I said vaguely. What the hell happened to your hands? I don't want to talk about it, I said. I wrapped myself up in Jenna's dressing gown. It smelled of perfume and cigar smoke. It stank, but it reminded me of her. And it made me feel warm. She made me a cup of tea and came to sit down next to me. There is something you can do for me, I said. If you want to wipe the slate clean, make up for the mess you made with this job. Anything, she said. Honestly, I can't stand you being angry with me, Frankie. I want you to tell me everything there is to know about Operation Fido. I want to know when it's going to happen. I want to know how it's going to happen. I want to know everything you've left out of your story. Every time you've said, I can't tell you about that. I want it all. You can trust me to keep it a secret. I'll never share it with another soul. After a moment's hesitation, Jenna said, Okay, I'll tell you. And she did. Chapter 16 A few weeks later, on the evening of 27th of December 2001, I sat on a beanbag in my living room, staring at the clock on the wall. Soon it would be 11.30pm. Jenna would be ready and waiting to make the call she'd spent years preparing for. She was no longer in the country, having flown out to her secret location the previous week, under the pretense of taking a holiday over the Christmas break. I'd spent Christmas Day on my own, dividing my time between reading, listening to music, and what turned out to be my chief pastime, thinking about Operation Fido. Rolf and Rose had kindly offered to have me over for Christmas dinner. Jenna usually celebrated Christmas with the Valentines and assured me it would be the greatest meal of my life. I made my excuses, explaining that I wanted to dedicate the holiday period to working on my novel. I'd got myself an office job by this point and had a few days off between Christmas and New Year. The truth was I couldn't have put pen to paper even if I'd wanted to. Fido was taking up all the space in my head. Ever since that conversation with Jenna, where I'd insisted she told me the whole story, it was all I could think about. And this was the real reason I couldn't possibly have gone to Rolf and Rose's house. All this 
I'll never share it with another soul business was easier said than done. I couldn't trust myself not to let some small but significant scrap of incriminating evidence come flying out of my mouth. Having finally been furnished with all the facts, I now fully appreciated how instrumental Rolf and his contacts had been in getting Fido off the ground. Not that any of them knew that's what they were doing. All being well, none of them would ever know of Fido's existence. 11.28. Two minutes to go. I popped off to the toilet and returned to my beanbag in time to count down from 10. 11.30. I knew exactly what was happening right at that moment. Jenna was making a call to North Yorkshire Police. She would say to whoever answered the phone, Good evening. I need to have an urgent conversation with the Chief of Police. The call handler would then tell her that the Chief of Police is not currently available. Jenna would respond with the calm response. In that case, the Chief of Police will need to make himself available immediately. If I'm unable to speak to him on the phone within the next 20 minutes, I will, and please listen very carefully, I will completely destroy Skipton Castle. Not an easy task, I'm sure you'll agree, but I've drawn up a highly detailed plan of how this can be achieved. This plan should have arrived at the Chief of Police's home address in the mail earlier today. I understand that's where he is now. I don't know if he's had time to read it or not, but I suggest he does his homework in advance of our call. Also, as I understand it, the castle does not currently have night-time security staff. As you may know, earlier this year, the castle employed a nighttime security guard in response to various acts of vandalism, but this contract has since expired and it was not felt necessary to renew it. I should declare at this stage that I have a colleague working on the inside of the castle who has planted high levels of nitroglycerin around various strategic points in the castle, all of which are detailed in the document which the Chief of Police should now be in possession of. These explosives can be detonated at any time via remote control. Again, the technology I'm using to control the explosives is all detailed in that document. Believe me when I say I am deadly serious about this, my friend. If anyone enters the castle grounds from this point on, I will know about it and I will detonate those explosives. I have full access to the security cameras, so let me repeat, absolutely no one will enter the castle grounds from this moment on. Do I make myself clear? The call handler will confirm that he or she understands the threat that is being made. Jenna will continue. With that in mind, while the castle itself is empty, it will become necessary to fence off the surrounding area. If the explosives do happen to go off, there should be no risk to anyone outside the castle walls other than the fact that a very sudden and very loud noise may cause discomfort to the easily startled. I'm just concerned that if the area is not fenced off and someone for whatever reason decides now would be a good time to start trespassing, there's the potential for that person to be injured. As laid out in my plan, the explosives will not demolish the castle. The walls are too thick, the stone is too solid, However, the blast will significantly weaken the building's structure, allowing for the second stage of demolition to take effect. But we'll come to that later. This is, of course, a pretty long monologue to deliver, and no doubt the call handler would make several attempts to speak during Jenna's delivery of it. Jenna's plan was for any interruption to be met with the order, let me finish, before calmly continuing to deliver her speech. On saying the words, but we'll come to that later... Jenna would pause, 
allowing the call handler to ask the questions they've been attempting to leap in with. When the call handler asks where she's from, she would reply that she's calling from outside the UK and offer no further information. When the call handler asks for her name, she'd say, call me Fido. When the call handler asks what she is trying to achieve, she would pretend she had forgotten to mention this and say, oh yes, thanks for reminding me. This is important. I am not a terrorist. I wish to state that categorically. There is no ideology behind this crime. None whatsoever. I am simply demanding £2 million. That's a relatively small sum, wouldn't you say? £2 million to save the life of a much-loved historical building. Come on, that's nothing. The call handler would be unlikely to get involved in any kind of discussion about whether or not £2 million is a large sum of money. They would, at this point, inform Jenna that she would be speaking directly to the Chief of Police in due course. Jenna would reply, I will call back in 15 minutes. I fully expect the Chief of Police to be available to take my call at that time. Then she will end the call. This exchange should have taken somewhere in the region of 12 minutes. I looked up at the clock. Having played out this whole scenario word for word in my head, the time was now 11.42. I waited for 15 minutes, wondering what Jenna would be doing right now in the quarter of an hour between ending the initial call and making the next one. I pictured her pacing up and down, puffing on a massive Cuban cigar. I wanted to text her and find out how the call went, but I'd sworn I wouldn't contact her until she arrived back home. I did some pacing around myself before flopping back down onto the beanbag. One minute to go. When the time was right, I counted down from ten again. 11.57 Jenna would be calling the same number at North Yorkshire Police. The same call handler would answer the phone. Is the Chief of Police ready to take my call, she would say. The call handler would confirm that the Chief of Police was waiting on the line. One of his colleagues was also present. A colleague, Jenna would say. You mean a negotiator? The call handler would not confirm whether the person is a negotiator or not. Jenna would be connected to the Chief of Police, speaking from his home, and the negotiator speaking from wherever the nearest available negotiator happened to be at the time. The Chief of Police would say hello and introduce himself. Jenna would then ask him if he's had the opportunity to read the documents she'd sent him in the mail. He would say, I have them in my hand right here. She would say, what do you think of them? The Chief of Police would avoid answering the question at that point. He would ask Jenna for her name. She would repeat, call me Fido. The chief of police would say, I don't really want to call you that. Clearly that isn't your real name, sir. Jenna would carefully avoid laughing at the effectiveness of her voice distorter. You can call me by my first name, the chief of police would add. My first name's Len. What's yours? I don't need your full name, sir. Just tell me your first name. Actually, Jenna would say, my first name is also Len, so that's going to be a bit confusing. Not for me, the Chief of Police would respond. I have a good friend who is also called Len, and we managed to converse perfectly easily. Thank you for telling me your name. Jenna would then say, Now, Len, now that we're on first name terms, perhaps you could answer my question. These documents in your hand, what do you think of them? I haven't had time to fully digest the information. 
the chief of police would say. But from what I can see, this is some kind of attempt to prove. Yes, prove. That's the right word to use here, Len. You're aiming to prove to me that you could theoretically knock down Skipton Castle. I am, Jenna would reply, but also, if you don't meet my demands, I am definitely going to do it. There is absolutely nothing theoretical about this, Len. Have you shared this document with your ballistics experts? I assume you have by this stage. The document has been shared with the Winder team, yes, the Chief of Police would reply. Let me assure you, Len, we are taking this threat 100% seriously. Oh good, Jenna would reply. I was worried you might think it was a hoax. Absolutely not, the Chief of Police would reply. Good. In that case, let's get straight down to it. I need that two million pounds as soon as possible so I can call off the operation. At this point, the negotiator would step in, saying, If I may make an observation at this point. Are you a negotiator? Jenna would cut in. It's not been made clear to me whether you're a negotiator or not. I'm a negotiator, the negotiator would say, but please... Call me by my first name. Don't tell me you're called Len as well, Jenna would say. The negotiator would laugh politely and say, Uh-huh, please call me Imran. Pleased to meet you, Imran. You're not with North Yorkshire Police, are you, mate? You don't sound like you are. Are you Scotland Yard or MI5? I'd rather not go into that, Len. I knew it. Your security services. Tell me, Imran, what do you think of this two million pounds thing? Not a bad offer, right? For a priceless bit of history. As you suggest, Imran would reply carefully, you could be asking for more. Nonetheless, you're expecting to extract a seven-figure sum from North Yorkshire Police. I'm not expecting it to come from North Yorkshire Police's budget. That would need to be funded on a national level, signed off from the top, possibly by Tony Blair. I'd love to speak to the Prime Minister, by the way. It's not a concrete demand like the £2 million is. I'd just quite like to speak to him and find out what his telephone manner would be like amidst a crisis like this one. I'll tell you now, Imran would reply, that's unlikely to happen. And this £2 million, well, that's something we can talk about. Let's go back and revisit one of the concepts which came up in conversation with Len earlier. The idea of this being a theoretical demolition. Now, I know that you've assured us this is a very real threat, but my question is, Len, how do we know? For example, how do we know those explosives are hidden away inside the castle? You've threatened to blow the castle up if anyone enters the ground, so we have no means of confirming this without potentially sacrificing an officer. You'll just have to take my word for it, Jenna would reply. If you feel like testing me, by all means, send someone inside and see what happens. Then there's stage two of the demolition, Imran would continue. You have to forgive me because I'm not an engineer. Neither do I know a great deal about these sorts of vehicles. Could you explain to me what is an automated wrecking crew? Jenna has a very simple response to this question, but in order for you to understand it, I'll need to fill you in on the part of a story I haven't mentioned yet. 
something else happened earlier that night. Actually, it's probably best if I mention something that happened 18 months previously. In June 2000, a yard which occupied a nearby industrial park was leased by an overseas company for the storage of several large vehicles, including five high-reach excavators, a commonly used vehicle associated with demolishing high-level buildings. The vehicles were moved in and had been sitting there untouched ever since. According to local chatter, on three or four occasions, nearby business owners took the trouble to write to the company's registered address in Fiji, asking what purpose the equipment served. Was it going to be used at any point? They received no reply and didn't bother following up. After all, the existence of these vehicles were none of anyone's business. They may have had to sit there looking at them through their office windows every day, but over time the equipment simply became part of the furniture of the place. That was until 27th of December 2001. At 11pm, 30 minutes prior to Jenna's call to North Yorkshire Police, on an invisible signal, the fleet of vehicles turned their lights on. Their engines kicked into gear. They drove, one by one, out of the industrial park and made the journey of less than a mile to the car park at Skipton Castle. And there they waited. The fact that no one was driving these vehicles would perhaps be less of a surprise 20 years later. As I write these words, driverless vehicles are yet to become commercially available, but nonetheless the concept is a familiar one. Imagine living in 2001 and being confronted not merely with a driverless car, but an automated wrecking crew. You'd say it was the stuff of science fiction. No doubt that very expression was on the tip of Imran's tongue. As a matter of fact, the technology was being researched and developed as far back as the late 1990s, including the successful construction of prototype vehicles. When Jenna had told me Rolf had contacts in every possible industry, she wasn't wrong. And because Rolf did, that meant that Jenna did too. Jenna also had money and lots of it. It's not just about having money, she told me. It's about finding the right people to pay. So that's what she'd done. She'd found the right people to pay. And the automated wrecking crew was born. All for the sum of half a million pounds. Half of Jenna's overall budget. But Jenna wouldn't need to say any of that. When Imran asked the question, could you explain to me what is an automated wrecking crew? Jenna would simply respond, what do you think it is? Imran would reply, what I see in these documents is what looks like a design for a fleet of heavy-duty vehicles with no human drivers, rather like an upscale version of my son's radio control car. But really, Len, isn't this the stuff of science fiction? Jenna would say, I assume by this point you have a team on the ground fencing off the area surrounding the castle? Imran would confirm, yes. I suggest you get in touch with them right away and ask for confirmation that my automated wrecking crew have arrived in the castle's car park. While you're doing that, I strongly suggest that you get a message across to them not to go anywhere near those vehicles. Like the castle itself, they are rigged with explosives and, this may sound like the stuff of science fiction my friend, but it's absolutely true, those vehicles will self-destruct once they're no longer of use to me. This will either be after they bulldoze the castle, 
or once I've had my money. But why would you... Imran would start. Aren't you going to do as I ask? Jenna would butt in. You're not going to get in touch with your officers on the ground and warn them about potentially exploding excavators. I have a colleague who's doing that right now, Imran would reply. What I'm interested to find out is, why would you destroy this automated wrecking crew of yours if we agree to hand over the money? Isn't it obvious, she would say, destruction of evidence. I fully intend to get away with this, Imran. Money or not, there will be an investigation afterwards, right? Imran wouldn't have much of an answer to that, so Jenna would then take the opportunity to steer the conversation back to the money. You see, one of the reasons I'm suggesting that £2 million is a very reasonable sum for me to be asking for is that this operation has proven to be rather expensive. 500000 just on the wrecking crew, plus an arm and a leg for the explosive materials, then there's all the telephone stuff and the travel, plus the accountants will take their cut. It's a million pounds budget altogether, Inran. I'm sure you'll be disappointed if I end up knocking down Skipton Castle. But can you imagine how disappointed I'll be? I'll have spent a million quid, which I'll never get back. Plus on top of that, I've destroyed Skipton Castle, which is a really nice place to go and visit. You've been there, Imran would say. What do you think? Jenna would reply. Is this your way of somehow trying to identify me? Can you help us find the man who knocked down Skipton Castle? He claims to be called Len and he went to Skipton Castle once. We have no other clues. Come on mate, how's that little spiel going to go down with the general public? Or English heritage? Or the local folks who've had their pride and joy wiped off the face of the earth? Someone phoned us up and told us he was going to knock down Skipton Castle unless we paid him a reasonable sum of money. We said no, so he knocked down Skipton Castle. Any idea who this man might be? We have no leads. It's interesting, Imran will reply, how confident you are, how calm. You could almost pass for a hoax caller, Len, but I know that you're far from that. I've had confirmation, by the way, that the vehicles listed in this document are stationed right beside the castle. I've also had confirmation from staff that those vehicles were not there prior to the car park officially closing. That means those vehicles got past the barrier okay. Of course they did, they're a wrecking crew. The barrier is unharmed. I told you I have a man on the inside. Who? Can you give me a name? Of course I can't give you a name. What kind of negotiation is this, Imran? Are you asking for a name in exchange for two million pounds? Or is this just a clumsy attempt to catch me out? We can talk about that, Imran would say. We can talk about the possibility of you giving me the name of your inside man as part of this negotiation. No, we can't, Jenna would reply. There is absolutely no way I'm giving you a name. What's more, you can interrogate the entire workforce all you like, but you will never discover the identity of my inside man or indeed woman. I'll restate the terms of this deal. Either you give me £2 million or I will knock the castle down. You have two hours to give me a definitive answer. Appendix 7 in the document in your hand has the details for the wire transfer. Two hours, Imran. I'll call back in one hour to check up on the progress of your discussions. I looked up at the clock. 12.15. If I'd played this conversation in my head at the correct speed, Jenna would be ending this call now.
I got up and paced around the room. It was late and I'd been awake since dawn, but there was no way I was sleeping tonight. At least not until our story was concluded, not until Jenna had the money. I stuck some ambient music on the stereo and sat back down. I closed my eyes, attempting to zone out, but every few minutes I'd open my eyes again to check the time. Finally, it was 1.15. On my countdown from 10, Jenna would be making her third call to North Yorkshire Police. In a matter of seconds, she would be reconnected to Imran and the Chief of Police. How are we doing? She would begin, rather breezily. We have a deal for you, would be Len's response. I hope it's a good one, Jenna would reply. From your point of view, yes. Oh, good. Then Imran would chip in. I just have one question before we proceed. Jenna would say, sure, fire away, if you pardon the expression. Are you familiar with the three-strop group? Jenna would laugh and say, <laughs> you mean the conspiracy theory? You're not telling me that that really happened, are you, Imran? As you suggest, Imran would say, it's a story favoured by online theorists, and I don't know where it came from, but it's such a good story, it's become a kind of thought experiment, a hypothesis amongst people of my profession. I've seen it used in training exercises. The trainer will pose the question, what would you do if you were leading that negotiation? It all comes down to a choice between refusing to pay and therefore risking the Eiffel Tower or losing a billion francs worth of public money. The three-stroke group will not compromise on any aspect of their bargain. They will not accept less than their asking price and if the money isn't surrendered, they will destroy the tower. You know what, Len? Everyone, absolutely everyone, concludes that giving the three-stroke group a billion francs is the better option, even when they know what the outcome was, that the building contained no explosives whatsoever. I have to admit, Jenna would say, it does make a good story. But of course it never happened, Imran would continue, and despite the story's popularity in certain corners of the internet, with its endless potential for copycat scams, no one has ever attempted to do what the three-strop group supposedly did. That is, until today. I suppose I should say congratulations, Len. My name's not Len, Jenna would say. I only said that as a joke. What shall I call you, then? Call me Fido. I prefer Len. You're wrong, by the way, Imran. This is not a copycat scam, as you put it. I'll grant you it bears some similarity to the Eiffel Tower thing. But did the three-strop group have an automated wrecking crew? You have to admit, Len, the principle is the same. Are you talking to me or the other Len? Jenna would say. You see, this is a little bit confusing, everyone being called Len, but I do take your point, it is the same principle. The crucial difference is the three-strop group didn't plant any explosives. They were chancers and they got away with it. Good luck to them. But I assure you, one word from me and those bombs will detonate. There isn't any need for that, the chief of police would cut in at this point. And I said we had a deal for you. We really do want to avoid the possibility of bombs going off. 
I'll still need to destroy the wrecking crew, Jenna would say, but that won't be too much of a disturbance, more like a cheap firework display. Just make sure your officers stand well back. I'm sure we can live with you destroying your own property, Len would say. Let's just get to the deal. We're offering you the money, Len. All the money. Two million pounds to be wired to the account you provided. But I need some assurances from you first. Assurances? Yes, assurances. I need some assurance that the details of what's happened here tonight will remain a closely guarded secret. From our point of view, as far as the public are concerned, this never happened. If you were to come out of hiding and start bragging about it, well, I suppose for a start, who would believe you? But even so, I don't want that to happen. I don't want speculation. You have my word of honour on that, Len, Jenna would reply. Secondly, I don't want this to be the start of something bigger. I don't want this to be the first in a string of extortion exercises. God knows how many castles there are in England. I haven't counted them, but I'm fully aware that if we give you the money, you could pull this same stunt again and again and again. You have my word of honour that I won't. How do we know that? You don't. That's the risk you're taking in giving me this money. Surely that's a risk you're willing to take. You'll have kept that in mind when you made this decision. I applaud you, Len. You have made the right choice. I certainly hope so, Len would say. Please don't prove me wrong. Jenna would then bid her farewell to Len and Imran, end the call and wait. At some point, most likely in the early hours of the morning, Jenna would be alerted to the presence of £2 million in one of her bank accounts. Shortly afterwards, in a car park in Skipton, a series of heavy-duty vehicles would spontaneously burst into flames. Or at least, that's what I was told was going to happen. To this day, I have no actual proof that any of these events actually took place other than my friend's word. There's always the possibility that this was just a story Jenna told me, for her own amusement or maybe as a means of keeping me interested in her. If that was her intention, I have to say, it worked. Chapter 17 I hardly slept for days. I thought about little else other than Operation Fido. I replayed the whole scenario over and over in my head each night from beginning to end. I kept searching online for stories about exploding demolition vehicles in Skipton, but nothing came up. I called one of my old workmates from the castle to see how things were going. I kept it casual, told a few boring stories of my own. My friend had been working over the holiday period he didn't appear to have any knowledge of the exploding excavators or a police investigation into Jenna's inside man at the castle. This was no real surprise. Jenna had already told me those explosions would most likely go unreported and a police investigation into Fido was unlikely to have taken place. In covering it up, the authorities would literally pretend the whole thing hadn't happened. Or maybe it didn't happen. And that's why there were no stories about exploding excavators. Because there were no exploding excavators. Because 
there is no such thing as a self-driving, self-destructing wrecking crew. Jenna came home the following week. I met her at the airport and gave her a big hug. She looked me up and down as though she couldn't figure out why I was making such a fuss of her. So, I said, it all went well. She smiled and nodded. She said, should we get a sandwich or something? You're being very casual, I said. I feel like I've had a huge weight lifted off my shoulders, she said. I can't describe how calm I feel right now. Casual, yeah, you chose a good word there. For the first time in years, Jenna McIntyre feels casual. You look it, I said. You look like you've been on a yoga retreat, not, you know. We sat and had lunch together. I said, so did it happen exactly as you said it would? With Len and Imran and everything. Well, he wasn't called Imran, she said, but yes, apart from that, it was pretty much word for word. How did you know they'd say those exact things? It wasn't exact, she said, but the gist of it and the conclusion, it was all there. Just as I planned, that's what happens when you put years of your life into something like this. There's one thing I can't quite get my head around, I said. It's just one small detail, but it's been bothering me this whole time. The barrier in the car park. How did the wrecking crew get past it? Jenna gazed into the distance. With immense difficulty, she said, like you wouldn't believe. That barrier, that slim metal rod that the vehicles could have easily smashed their way through. Jesus Christ, it nearly ended the whole thing. I thought I'd never get past it. Luckily, Rolf has a contact for everything. He put me in touch with a guy who put me in touch with someone else who put me in touch with an engineer who specialises in security overrides. That's all I needed, a way of overriding the system without setting any alarms off. We got there in the end after literally months of testing. Did I tell you about the test runs, a whole series of them, late night trips from the wrecking crew's industrial estate to the castle and back? It was ridiculously risky, but it had to happen. The bigger risk would be trusting my luck on the night. And that barrier, the first two test runs we did, the override didn't work. It had to be redesigned twice. The complicated bit, those self-driving vehicles, that was child's play. Who'd have thought getting in and out of a car park would be the stumbling block? Ah, oh Christ, I'm getting stressed again just thinking about it. Can we talk about something else? So. We talked about something else. Then, in the taxi into town, I said, What next? Any more big projects on the horizon, Miss McIntyre? I knew what she was going to say, but even so, when she said it, my heart almost stopped. She said, Yes, we're going to do it again. Chapter 18 Three months later, I got a phone call from my dad. I'd lost track of how long it had been since I'd seen him last. He'd fallen out of the habit of buying me a car, or indeed anything, on my birthday. As it happened, he was calling about a birthday, my mum's 50th. I'm trying to throw a surprise party, he said, so don't mention it to her. Don't worry, I won't, I said. You're invited, obviously. 
said my dad. Everyone is. I've been trying to get in touch with some of our old friends, but I can't find anyone's details. There's an address book with some numbers in, but I don't recognise any of her names. She hasn't had any friends around for years. I'm not sure I actually met any of them in the first place, but then I thought, Frank probably did, when you were a kid. You remember your mum's friends? Kind of, I said. There was a lady called Val, and another one, Wendy, I think. Yes! He cheered at me down the line. Val and Wendy, those are names from the book. They'll know of some other people I can invite. It can't just be you, me and Claude. What kind of surprise party would that be? Does it really have to be a surprise party? I said. Well, she's not going to agree to have an actual party, he said. She never celebrates her birthday, never wants to do anything. I just think we should mark the occasion in some way. Okay, you can count me in, Dad. Great stuff, son. How's it all going, anyway? How's university? I graduated last year, Dad. I'm working now. Listen, I'd better go and give Val and Wendy a call. I'm on my lunch break. I only have ten minutes left. I'll see you at the party. A couple of Saturdays later, I arrived at my parents' house via the back door, as per my dad's instructions. I met him in the kitchen. Your mum's upstairs, he whispered. She usually comes down around this sort of time for breakfast. I'll put some banners up. Do you like them? I glanced into the living room at the three small rectangular happy birthdays hanging from the ceiling. One of them had the number 40 printed across the middle. My dad had scribbled the number 4 out and replaced it with a 5. On the broken photocopier which my parents used as a coffee table were two tubes of Pringles and half a jar of pickled onions. I did some snacks. He mumbled. If she's going to be down in a minute, I said, where's the surprise? This is the surprise. Just me and you? Not even Claude? He had to work, said my dad. He also suspects that your mum doesn't think much of him, which is true enough. What about her friends? Oh well, let's just say they're former friends... I don't know exactly what happened, but... He stopped talking when the floorboard above our heads made a creak. That's her getting dressed, he whispered. Get under the table. Dad, I really don't think this is going to work. Well, this is the best I've managed to do for her, he snapped. I haven't done much for your mum over the years, truth be told, and I really wanted for this to be... Anyway, I'd appreciate it if you could get under the table for me, Frank, okay? I crawled under the table as my mum descended the stairs. Good morning, Burton, she said. I'd forgotten about my mum's habit of calling my dad by his surname. Morning, he said casually. How are you, Frack? she said. I'm fine, said my dad. I was talking to Frank Jr. What's he doing under the table? I'm fine too, I said. Uh, surprise. What? He came to surprise you, said my dad. I'm surprised to see him on the floor, she said. Why don't you take a seat while you're here? My mum poured herself a large glass of gin and took it through to the living room. She sat in her armchair and opened a book, apparently failing to notice my dad's banners. I'd hidden a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates in the backyard. 
I went out to fetch them and join my mum in the living room. She looked up and for the first time that day looked mildly surprised. Are those for me? She said. Happy birthday, I said. My birthday is on 17th of April, she said. Aren't we a few weeks early? Oh, I said. Are you sure it's not today, love? Said my dad. I ought to know my own birthday, Burton. I got you something as well, he said. He popped out to the kitchen cupboard and returned with a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates. My mum laughed and shook her head. Look at the pair of you. Two equally useless peas in a pod. All right, steady on, love, said my dad. Sorry, she said. I don't mean to sound cruel, but surely you know I'm lactose intolerant and fresh flowers exacerbate my hay fever. Can you stick them in the garden, please, Burton? Okay, said my dad. Look, I really do appreciate the gifts from both of you. They're very thoughtful and it's a forgivable mistake. There's pickled onions, said my dad. I am partial to a pickled onion, said my mum. Thank you, Burton. My dad went off to dispose of the flowers. I'm sorry, I said. This was dad's idea. It certainly looks like his handiwork she said, looking up at the banners for the first time. As soon as she saw the banners, she slapped the photocopier, howling with laughter. For a moment, I thought she was having a heart attack. Are you okay? I said. She chuckled louder, gasping for breath. Oh my God! she exclaimed. My dad came running back into the room. What's wrong, love? he said. She's laughing, I explained. Laughing? he said. My mum wheezed, bent over double, head between her knees. Are you sure that's laughter? he said to me. I nodded. What's the joke? My mum sat up straight again. The joke, she roared, is that I'm 51, you ridiculous human being. She was still rocking back and forth when I left ten minutes later. Chapter 19 Meanwhile, Jenna's next plan was taking shape remarkably quickly. The success of Operation Fido had proven that it could be done. Her follow-up project, which she'd labelled Operation Elephant, would be pretty much an exact replica of the first, but with what Jenna called a few tweaks here and there, adapting the Fido model for a new location. Jenna told me she'd be arranging a new job for me at Carnarvon Castle. But it wouldn't start until springtime. In the meantime, I was stuck doing temporary admin jobs here and there. There was plenty of work about, but none of it lasted long. Just after my mum's surprise party, I signed up for a new office job starting a couple of weeks later. Faced with a fortnight of unemployment, I started wondering how I'd managed to pay my next lot of bills. I remembered I still had that copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders. To be truthful, I'd never really forgotten it. I often used to carry it around in my inside coat pocket, just to be daring. I liked the idea of being a law-abiding citizen while carrying a banned book around with me everywhere I went. I'd always told myself I'd keep hold of it 
as though it were a good luck charm, but it seemed like the obvious solution to my lack of funds was to make a small fortune from selling a book I had no intention of reading again. Then I wouldn't need to take that office job, I could spend some time writing. I took a train to Hebden Bridge because I'd heard there were a bunch of second-hand booksellers there. Maybe I could get it properly valued. I tried looking on eBay to compare my own copy against another second edition, but all I could find were copies from a larger print run, selling at 30 or 40 US dollars. I took a wander around the town, examining some of these shops from the outside, a little too nervous to go inside and inquire, even though that had been the specific purpose of this trip. I took the plunge and browsed inside one of the bookshops. The guy behind the counter asked if I was looking for anything in particular. I asked casually if he knew anyone who can give me a valuation on a collectible book. How collectible are we talking? he said. It's a strange situation really, I said. Do you know about this? I briefly pulled the book out of my inside pocket and then shoved it back inside. I've sold a few of those, he said. I'm not sure how valuable it is. It's a second edition, I said. It's usually the first editions that are worth more, he said, especially with popular titles with small initial print runs. Take the Harry Potters, for example. He said it as though I didn't know who J.K. Rowling was, or what a first edition was, or even what a book was. His tone really irritated me, so I said, You know this book was banned, don't you? You shouldn't be selling copies of this. So why are you trying to sell one, he said. Shouldn't you be handing that in to the police? Good point, I said. I'd better go and do that. Thanks for the information. I went to a cafe around the corner and sat with my notebook and a cup of black coffee, wondering what to do next. I spotted an antique shop across the street. A man walked out wearing a tweed jacket and a pair of old corduroy trousers and hiking boots. All he needed was a top hat, I thought, and he'd complete the look-at-me-aren't-I-eccentric look. I realised I was judging him based on my assumption that he had lots of money, in the same way I'd judged Rolf and Rose before I got to know them. The look on the man's face didn't help. He was one of those rich people who seemed to have a permanent smile, as though every five seconds a feedback loop in his brain flashed up a picture of his bank balance. The man fiddled with the wooden sign hanging out the front and went back in. I had a feeling this man would be even more patronising than the guy in the bookshop, but I'd come here especially to find someone like him, who could help me figure out how much money could be made from the book in my pocket. He may have dressed like the artful dodger, but he had the look of a man who really didn't need to be working for a living, to whom selling antiques was either a fun pastime or the basis of some handy tax loophole. He probably only opened his shop a couple of days a week and spent the rest of his time shooting pheasants or whatever it was that rich people actually did. I finished my coffee and crossed the street. I stepped into the antique shop. It smelled of lavender for no particular reason. Can I help you? The man said. There you go, said my inner inverted snob. He's a proper aristocrat. He's got the voice and everything. I'm hoping you can, I said, or maybe you could recommend someone who could do a valuation on this. I pulled the book out of my pocket. I might as well have pulled out a gun. The man looked genuinely horrified. Where the hell did you get that? He snapped. As it happens, the author is a friend of mine. This is a second edition. 
It's highly collectible. I know it is, he bellowed and snatched it out of my hand. Oi, I said, what are you doing? Give me that back. I'm confiscating this, the man replied sternly, and I suggest you leave this shop immediately before I make a citizen's arrest. Oh yeah, I said, why don't you try it, pal? Try and make a citizen's arrest. I'll make a citizen's arrest on you for stealing my book and for trying to arrest me when I've done nothing wrong. This is an illegal text, the man retorted, placed in the same category as terrorist propaganda. It is my civic duty to hand this in to the authorities. Civic duty, I said, or do you happen to know how much it's worth to an American collector? Don't pretend you're actually going to hand this over to the cops. It's a hundred grand in your hand right there. Leave now, he said. Not without my property. You leave me no choice, said the man, taking me by the arm. I'm arresting you for possession of a banned criminal textbook. Hang on a second, mate. Is this really a thing? Citizen's arrest? I thought that was just a figure of speech. Surely antiques dealers don't have the authority to arrest whoever they want. I will say it again. I am placing you under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to... He paused, trying to recall. You've seen it on the cop shows, right? I said. The Americans say it differently. They say you have a right to an attorney. British cops just say anything you do say can be taken in evidence and could be used against you in a court of law. Worse of that effect, anyway. Isn't there another bit? He said. I'd like to get this right. I've never arrested anyone before. One thing that's always bugged me, I said, is that on the cop shows they always say, read him his rights. That's an odd choice of word, wouldn't you say? Surely they've memorised it. They're not checking their notes. It's a couple of sentences. The man's steady smile returned, and he relaxed his grip on my arm. That's a very good point, he said. Listen, mate, I said, I'm sure you have better things to do than take me down to the police station. Just give me my book back, please. Like I say, the author is a friend of mine. I wouldn't admit that out loud if I were you, he said. Why, I said, she's not a wanted criminal or anything. They banned the book, but she was never prosecuted. The man chuckled softly. (laughs) She, she, I doubt this was written by a woman. Well, the joke's on you then, isn't it? I made a move to grab the book, but he pulled his arm right back and blocked me with his free hand. You've got no right to do this, I said. This is none of your business. Clearly you don't know anything about this book. For your information, it definitely was written by a woman. It was written by a woman who has more brains in her little finger than you have in your head. I realise that's an awkward metaphor. It's not even a metaphor. I'm not all that eloquent when I'm angry. Then I suggest you calm down and leave my shop. I'll leave your shop with that book in my hand. No, you won't. It was obvious that arguing with this man was getting me nowhere, and so I did something that I'd never done before and thankfully have never had reason to since. I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it. A part of me was having a whale of a time. I just couldn't see any other way of dealing with the situation. I couldn't lose the book, not under these circumstances anyway, and so I punched him in the face, snatched the book and ran away.
Chapter 20 I gave up on trying to sell the book after that. I managed to get by financially through my series of temporary jobs. Then, as planned, I became a tour guide at Carnarvon Castle. The money was better than I'd had before and Jenna paid for a hotel room for me to stay in for three months so my living expenses were minimal. The job was good fun but this time when Jenna told me it was time to leave I was happy to hand in my resignation. Reciting the same script day in and day out was grating on me a bit. Even though I had no other job to go to I missed my little flat in Manchester and missed seeing Jenna in person on a regular basis. I'd given her all the inside information she needed. Then, on 17th of July 2002, Jenna left the country. Two days later, on 19th of July, I sat on the beanbag in my flat, looking up at the clock, knowing what would happen at 11.30. Jenna would be making a call to North Wales Police, threatening to destroy Carnarvon Castle, demanding to speak to the Chief of Police. By 11.50pm, she would be speaking to the Chief of Police directly. Hello, Graham, she would greet him. Is Imran there with you? I'm on the line, Imran would say. You see, Jenna would say, I knew you went with North Yorkshire Police, Imran. You're definitely MI5. You're like a telephone-based James Bond. It doesn't matter which service I work for, Imran would say. What matters is, well, here we are again. I was really hoping we wouldn't be. You didn't enjoy our last conversation, Jenna would say. Len, let's be serious. Let's get on with this. We all know why we're here. I understand you've sent some detailed instructions to Graham regarding your plan to demolish Carnarvon Castle. Now, before we began this call, I briefed Graham, brief being the operative word, on our previous contact. What do you reckon, Graham? Jenna would butt in. What do I... Graham would inquire, pretending not to have heard the question. I successfully extorted money from the British government. Two million quid. I'm sure Imran filled you in on that part. I also filled him in on the flaw in your plan last time, Len. Imran would say. Let's talk about that. There was no flaw in my plan last time. Everything ran smoothly. As I've said, I succeeded. Under false pretenses, as it turns out, which leads me to suspect that although you evaded the question at the time, the Skipton incident was clearly directly inspired by the mythical three-strop group. False pretenses? No explosives, Len. You'd find more explosives in a Christmas cracker. So you're saying I tricked you? You don't agree? There was no way those excavators could have brought that building down on their own. Like one of the experts said on the site the next day, it would be like trying to sink a submarine by knocking on the door. Surely you're pleased about that, Jenna would say. Imagine overseeing an operation to remove large-scale quantities of nitroglycerin from a castle while at the same time hiding the fact of its existence from the public. I was doing you a favour, if anything. Also, I wasn't tricking anyone. I was bargaining, and I won. You're awfully confident, aren't you, Len? Imran would say, for someone who's been caught out. 
I don't believe I was caught out, Jenna would say. And your implication that because there were no explosives in Skipton Castle, there definitely won't be any in Carnarvon Castle is dangerous, to say the least. I'm not saying that, Imran would reply, a little too keenly perhaps. We're treating this as a credible threat, definitely, aren't we, Graham? This certainly looks like a credible threat to me, the chief of police would reply. Good, Jenna would say, because there definitely are explosives inside that castle and they're ready to be detonated on my command. It's an impressive system, by the way, Imran would say, triggered by a mobile phone device. All you need to do is call that number, right? Right. I didn't mention it last time, but on paper this does appear to be the work of a lone wolf, or at least a lone wolf with yet another inside man on the castle. But Len, let's be realistic, you've had help. Not only do you have an untraceable phone line and an untraceable bank account, but you also have yet another automated wrecking crew. This is far from the work of one person. As I've said, you're a very confident man. And in many ways, you have reason to be. We've been investigating you for the last seven months and still have no idea who you are. But even with your level of confidence, Len, you have to concede surely it's a matter of time before we locate at least one of your large international network of assistants. Jenna will laugh at this point and reply, <laughs> Very good, Imran. Large international network of assistants. You've hit the nail right on the head. That's exactly what they are. The trouble is, none of them know who I am or what my purposes are. And they certainly don't know about each other. The guy who sorted out the phone line, for example, had no idea what he was doing it for. But you paid him, Imran would say, and we'll find him. And when we find him, it doesn't matter if he knows who he's working for. All we need to do is follow the money. That's what this is all about, isn't it, Len? This is all about money. I'm glad you brought up the subject of money, Jenna will chip in, because I've been trying to ask Graham what he thinks about the asking price. But you keep talking, Imran. Let the man speak. He isn't a telephone-based James Bond like you are, but he's the chief of police for North Wales. Give the man a chance to say a full sentence. What do you think, Graham? Two million quid? I'm not upping the stakes, even though inflation has probably risen slightly in the last seven months. I should probably ask for an extra couple of thousand at least, but no, two million pounds is an absolute bargain. But surely it's the right amount to ask for. Asking for a billion wouldn't work. Imagine that. That would definitely go straight to Mr Blair, and he'd probably say, forget it, it's only Carnarvon Castle. Then he can get back to bombing Afghanistan, or whatever it is he's up to at this time of night. But two million quid? Is that worth getting Tony Blair out of bed for? Even if this is classed as a grade one terrorist incident. I'm not a terrorist, by the way, Graham. I do hope Imran has assured you of that already. I made an offhand remark about Blair's overseas policies. Truth be told, I haven't been keeping a close eye on current affairs. Doesn't really interest me. This is a simple act of extortion. Repeat after me. This is a simple act of extortion. But it's interesting, Graham, isn't it, how we've become so fixated on ideological crime. A random stabbing in Bristol is unlikely to make the national news if it's a drunken altercation outside a pub. But if the attacker happens to be a religious fundamentalist, suddenly 
it isn't just local news, it's not even national anymore. They'll be watching it on the other side of the world. All because the man with the knife in his hand was doing it for God or whatever. Never mind the fact that hundreds, maybe thousands of people are killed every day for all sorts of different reasons. You see what I'm saying, Graham? Well, actually, I've deviated from the point somewhat. I was asking you what you think about the figure, that specific amount, 2 million quid. An absolute bargain if you ask me, Graham. But what do you think? Graham would pause in his response, checking perhaps to see if Jenna has actually finished her extended monologue before saying, Actually, I think £2 million is an enormous amount of money. Remember, this is public money you're asking for, Len. You sound as though you're some kind of noble vigilante taking money off the man. Let me be absolutely clear, Len. If we give you £2 million, you'll be stealing that money from the people of Britain. It's the people's money. It's not mine. It's not Imran's. And whatever you might think of him, it isn't Mr Blair's either. Could I speak to Mr Blair? Jenna would chip in at this point. As you quite rightly suggest, Imran would respond, Mr Blair is most likely sleeping at this moment in time. And this is what interests me, Jenna would continue. Clearly a demand for £2 million is not enough for the Prime Minister to be woken from his sleep. What about a higher figure, Imran? I'm not demanding one, I'm just interested. Would £10 million be enough to get Blair out of bed? Or would he refuse to get out of bed for anything less than a billion? Is there a written agreement somewhere about this sort of thing? Where's the tipping point, Imran? Also, let's say you agree to pay me two million quid. No offence, but that's not your decision, right? That comes from higher up. So let's say whoever it is within the government approves that payment in order to save the castle. Let me ask you a question. At what point in the morning will the Prime Minister be alerted to the fact that a settlement was made over the potential destruction of Carnarvon Castle? Will you let him have breakfast first? Let Tony have a bowl of Frosties? That's an awful lot of questions, Imran will respond. Sadly, I'm not going to answer any of those questions today. Let's just take a look at this situation that we're in right now. I've had reports from the officers in the area that the automated wrecking crew are situated to the front of the castle. Just tell me truthfully, Len, are those real explosives within that castle? Remember what our man said back in Skipson? It stuck with me because it's such a wonderfully absurd image. You might as well try to sink a submarine by knocking on the door. Without those explosives, that castle isn't going anywhere tonight. Can I tell you something else, Len? Let me be honest with you, even if those explosives are really there this time, and I'm doubtful that they are, but nonetheless we're treating this as a credible threat, even if those explosives are there and you detonate them, you'd still need that wrecking crew to finish off the job, to knock the building to the ground. But you know what's happened, Len? While we've been talking, the military have been alerted to the presence of those vehicles out there at the front of the castle, and as we speak, Helicopters are circling the area, waiting for the command to open fire. I knew you'd do that this time, Jenna would say, which is why I made sure to actually stuff the place with explosives. It's made the operation a bit more expensive, to be honest, but it was a necessary step. So feel free to shoot down those excavators, Imran. I'll dial that number and boom, the castle will probably fall down without 
the wrecking crew to be honest so please don't do it also I won't get my two million pounds that way and I really do need that two million pounds what for Imran will say have you spent the first lot already never you mind Jenna will say just saying I need more just this once this is the problem Len Imran will say this is getting out of hand how many times are you actually going to do this we can't keep paying out to protect all the castles in Britain I'll be honest with you Len and no offence to you Graham but I don't care about Carnarvon Castle what I care about is protecting this country from people like you Len just because you're not killing anyone doesn't mean you're not a terrorist I'm not going to get into a semantic debate with you here Len that is what you are categorised as as far as we're concerned you are a terrorist okay call me what you like what name do you have for me on file by the way I don't know your name as you know but what name do you have on my file does it matter I'm just curious if you must know your file is labeled Len even though I requested that you refer to me as Fido last time it seems unlikely that you'd actually be called Fido in real life Len whereas there's always the possibility that you're actually called Len or Leonard or whatever and you've given us your real name as some kind of double bluff hmm does that amuse you Len Imran will say do you think this is funny a bit this is a very serious situation Len I'm trying to convey that to you somehow but it just doesn't seem to register with you you're treating this whole situation like it's a big joke come on mate admit it it's quite funny all this holding historical buildings hostage <laughs> business it's not funny Len it's a completely unnecessary thing to do you're not helping anyone here you're not a hero as Graham quite rightly said you're threatening to extort two million pounds of taxpayers money that's money for education healthcare, welfare that's a perfectly valid point Jenna will say which is why I'm only asking for two million from a public purse point of view two million quid is a drop in the ocean you're not going to put me off with all of this taxpayers money business I pay my taxes too you know there you go there's a clue for you I'm a UK taxpayer myself check all the UK taxpayers investigate all the ones called Len there's a start for you I know you think you're somehow untouchable Imran will say all these jokes you keep making about how little we know about you let me be absolutely clear on this point Len we will catch you okay just because we haven't caught up with you doesn't mean we're not going to as I say your downfall is going to be this team of yours there's always a weak link in the chain and we will find yours we'll identify the individuals involved and at least one if not several of them will lead us directly to you you cannot carry on pulling the same trick over and over again maybe not Jenna will say but let's just get to the bottom line here Imran on this occasion I have got away with it on this occasion you are going to pay me two million pounds aren't you Imran will pause very briefly before responding yes Len on this occasion yes we will
Chapter 21 I met Jenna at the airport again. I was less pleased to see her on this occasion. Again, I hadn't slept for days, but not with excitement this time. When I met her at the arrivals gate, I was hopping up and down on the spot. I couldn't keep still, even when she hugged me. What's wrong with you, man? she said. How did it go? I said. Perfectly, she said. Couldn't have gone better. Got the money, got away with it, again. Stop worrying, Frankie. What's wrong with you? I'll talk to you about it when we're alone, like not in an airport. We found a quiet corner of the car park. So, what's up? she said. I keep playing your proposed conversation with Imran and Graham in my head. I'm glad you're taking such a keen interest, Frankie. I wish I wasn't this keen, I said, but all this stuff about investigating the wider team, finding the weak link in the chain, that's me they're talking about, isn't it? I'm the one who will eventually leave them to you and get myself locked up in the process. Why do you think that? Because I'll be very easy for them to find, ridiculously easy. All they have to do is take a look at the employment records of both castles and see that I'm listed as having worked for both in the months preceding each incident. Well, here's the interesting thing, she said brightly. The police won't investigate. They can't because it's a crime that didn't officially take place. The Secret Service, on the other hand, they'll be all over it. And yes, they definitely will investigate you. But you'll never know that they have. If the regular police were in charge of the case, they'd drag you out of your bed, whip you down to the station, interrogate you for hours. Eventually, they'd realise they can't charge you with anything and they'd let you go. With MI5, it's kind of the same process but easier for you. They'll find out everything there is to know about Frank Burton. They'll see you have no criminal record, no connections to any person or organisation that's in any way suspicious. You're a recent graduate who's moved from one temp job to another like thousands of others like you. It just so happens you worked at two different castles, picking up bits of work, just like a hundred thousand others in the same position as you. They might put you under surveillance just to see if they've missed anything. Their spies might spot you meeting up with me, but who am I to them? I'm so far off their radar, they won't even register my presence. I don't like this, Jenna. I don't want to be under surveillance. You'd never know that you were. But what are they going to be doing? Listening in on my phone calls? Checking my internet history? You're not doing anything illegal on there, are you? No, but it's an invasion of my privacy. That's why I was hoping you wouldn't figure this part out, Frankie. What, you knew this was going to happen? Of course I did. It's a calculated risk. It's not even a risk. It's a matter of fact. There is nothing the security services can come up with to link either of us with those crimes. I just didn't want you worrying about it, Frankie. Being investigated, all of that stuff. It's mad, all this stuff, isn't it? Unexpectedly, I burst out laughing. <laughs> you got that right, mate, I said. I wanted to say more. I still didn't understand why it was so important to her that I played my basic part in both of those castles. The more I thought about it, the more my two jobs at the castle seemed like unnecessary window dressing. All the information I sent across to Jenna, internal photos, staff documents, 
it was nothing that couldn't be accessed by employing the services of a rudimentary computer hacker. And why did it have to be me both times when clearly my name was going to get flagged up? I couldn't swallow Jenna's claim that this wasn't a risk. She'd made a dangerous move and what's more, she'd done it deliberately. I desperately wanted to ask her to explain herself but I knew I'd never get a straight answer. All I could say was, well, listen, given that folks are going to be listening to my conversations for a while, we better stop talking about Fido and Elephant and if you have any more tricks up your sleeve, it's best if you keep them to yourself. It's okay, Frankie, she said. I won't need you to work in another castle for me. You can officially stand down. So that's you standing down as well, is it? She hugged me again and whispered in my ear. I've just begun, Frankie. And you're right, mate. Let's not talk about it now. We took a taxi into town. On the way, Jenna was acting like everything was cool, like she'd somehow reassured me instead of making me even more stressed and paranoid. When we parted, she kissed me on the cheek and casually said, See you soon. I wasn't in the mood for seeing her again for a while. Now was the time to start entertaining that sneaking suspicion I'd always had that Jenna was making this whole thing up. After all, there was no evidence that any of these incidents had actually taken place other than me taking her word for it. I had no way of proving it either way. This technique worked for a while. I decided I'd been suckered by a fairy tale my friend had told me in the pub. As practical jokes go, this was rather elaborate. Nonetheless, a joke was all this was. It couldn't possibly have been anything else. But as the days went by, the thoughts kept creeping in. Images of bugging equipment embedded in my electrical sockets. Anyone who happened to be walking behind me in the street or sitting in a nearby parked car was clearly a government spy. And what did Jenna mean when she said she'd only just begun? Was she actually going to hold every single castle in Britain to ransom? Or did she have something even bigger planned? A few months previously, I'd have been desperate to know the answer to that question. But somehow Jenna had started scaring rather than exciting me. I wasn't interested anymore. Thank you for listening. Please do check out the physical version of this book, which can be purchased from Amazon. And also the ebook version is available from there. Also, the full audiobook version is available from frankburton.bandcamp.com. Show some support on there. I do recommend purchasing a copy of the book and giving it away to someone who may not have heard of the Ragbag Universe. And they will love you forever. See you tomorrow for part four.